At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you were with us last week, you know that we kicked off a series called The Lord of the Church, which is walking through Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Last week we saw that the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ and all that he is. And so we have been talking about that and we will continue that study today in the second installment in this series. But before we do that, I want to think for just a moment with you about tapestries or rugs or cross stitches, you know, woven pieces of art. I don't know if you have someone in your home who has the ability to do this or if you've ever purchased a woven piece of art before, but, but here's a representation of one, something that is stitched together so that when you look at it on the front side, what you see is a beautiful work of art. Now, this particular tapestry was actually created by someone pretty famous. It was actually a work of art created by a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom who actually uh, lived in the Netherlands at the time of World War II and helped uh, hide Jewish people away from the Nazis as they invaded their country. Uh, Eventually, uh, her family was found out for what they were doing, and they were taken to prison. Uh, Corey alone survived that ordeal of her family. But if you were to go to Corey Ten Boom's uh, place of residence where she lived in the Netherlands, Today, you would see this work of art hanging on the wall. Now, it's interesting. This is the side we're familiar with. This is the front side. But there also is a backside to a woven piece of art, isn't there? The backside is much messier, isn't it? I mean, it's all of the threads that make this beautiful front side. They're coming together on the backside. When you look at the backside of a woven piece of art, You're able to make out certain things about shape and color and size, but other details are hard for us to grasp. Now, if you were to go to Corey Ten Boom's home, which side of this beautiful picture do you think is hanging outward? You'd think this one, right? But you'd be wrong. As you walk in the house, you would notice this is the side that is facing out. Why? Well, there's a poem that inspires this piece, a poem by Grant Colfax Tuller that goes like this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I do not choose the colors he works so steadily. Oft times he weaves in sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Friends, we live our lives in a world that is messy. Can I get an amen to that? It's a difficult world in which we live. And the challenge that we face in the world in which we live is we think that we're looking at the front side of the work of art at all times. We think that what we see, feel, and experience is all there is. So that if I feel that God is absent, then God must be absent. If I feel like this world is spinning out of control, this world must be spinning out of control. 
But what you and I need to remember is that we're looking in this world at the backside of the work of art. If only we could see what is going on right now in heaven. If only our eyes could picture the reality of our God and all of his glory, our perspective would shift. Now, friends, in Revelation chapter 1, what we have is we have God flipping the work of art to a group of people who are staring at the messy backside God spins the work of art for just a moment to reveal to us the reality of who he really is. And so as a group of people who are living in this world, don't you want to see the other side? We get to do so in Revelation chapter 1. And it's a gift that God has given to us. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I want to read these verses for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make three observations today. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, friends, in these few verses today, I want us to see three things that help reveal to us the front side of the work of art that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, what are those things? The first thing we need to see, and the first thing we need to remember, is that the revelation was given to those of us living in the real world. It's given to those of us who live in the messy world that is around us. To us, this revelation has been given. Now, that is pictured for us in that the revelation initially came to the Apostle John. When we get to verse 9, it's the third reference to John being the human author of this letter. And we might want to ask the question, well, which John? Well, good tradition as well as internal evidence would indicate that this John that is referenced is the Apostle John. And so who is the Apostle John who received this letter? And how does that remind us of the messy backside that we are living inside of? Well, John was the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He's the the one who wrote the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 
And if you're keeping count, along with Revelation, God used John to write five different letters in our New Testament. And he's the only one that God used to write a, a gospel account, as well as epistles or letters, as well as prophecy. So John is someone that the Lord used in a mighty way to deliver a lot of the revelation of who Jesus is. And that was part of the reason why God gave John longevity in life. John was well into his 90s when he writes this revelation. So he is the one who wrote these things. But what else do we know about him? Well, we also know that he was one of the original disciples. He was one of the original 12. He was in the original band that got together. And he was one that traveled with Jesus and saw his miracles and heard his sermons, including hearing the, the statement that one day Jesus would come back again. So John, along with the other apostles, had an expectation that Christ would return. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, verses we looked at last Sunday, he had an expectation that Jesus would come back in the clouds. And make no mistake, friends, the apostles thought that Jesus was serious when he said that. So they were expecting his return. And yet, when Revelation is written, it was written in the 90s A.D., and they had not seen Jesus for 60-plus years. Now, 60 years in Bible times sounds like a short number, doesn't it? I mean, all this stuff happened thousands of years ago. What's 60 years? But let's personalize it for a moment. Think back 60 years in your own life. How old were you? Some of you were not even a twinkle in your parents' eyes at that time. Others of you were just a small child. It had been 60 years since they had heard the voice of Jesus. It had been 60 years since he had seen Jesus. And so I'm just extrapolating that John and the other apostles might have been wondering, did we hear him right? Is he really coming back? Is he really going to make good on his promise? Not only do we have John as an original disciple, but we also need to remember that John and his brother James had, through the agency of their mom, had gone to Jesus and asked for a place of special honor. But Jesus' response was, you're going to be connected to me after all, but you will be connected with me and you will suffer with me. You will be persecuted in my name. And that's something that actually played out in the life of James and John. James was the first apostle to be martyred for his faith and connection to Christ in Acts chapter 12. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we find that John, the apostle, is imprisoned because of his faith in Jesus. And in between James's death and John's imprisonment, all of the rest of the apostles had been killed because of their faith and connection to Christ. And so not only would he have been wondering, Jesus, are you really going to come back? But he also would have been wondering, Jesus, what is happening? Those who are most connected to you, the original band... We have all experienced suffering. We have all experienced death. They were living in the messy backside of the document. They were experiencing hardship and difficulty. Now, John was someone who had pastored for an extended period of time in the city of Ephesus, the same city to which Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians. John had pastored there for a number of years. And it was actually during his ministry in Ephesus that some charges were brought against him in he was arrested because of his faith in Christ, and he was sent out to the island of Patmos. What was Patmos? Well, Patmos was kind of like Alcatraz. It was a prison island. 
It was where Rome sent their dissenters to go and work hard labor in the onyx mines. So here is John in his 90s, arrested and sent to the island of Patmos to do hard work. Now, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that struggle and all of that difficulty, we're reminded that he lived in the real world. The book of Revelation was not written so that people who were staring at stained glass and who were experiencing blessing and honor so that they might have a neat verse to put in their flip-over calendar. No, the book of Revelation was given to people who were struggling and who were dealing with all kinds of adversity in the real world to be reminded of who Jesus really was. And so if you are are here today, friends, and you are struggling, know that this book is written for you. That's why John says in in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was experiencing this difficulty, and it is in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of his living in the real world, that the revelation comes. Now, friends, if you are here today and you're wondering where God is, you're wondering what God is up to, you're wondering if this world is spinning wildly out of control, we need to look at the verses of Revelation 1 to be reminded of what's on the front side of the tapestry. Well, what do we see inside of these verses? Well, the first thing that we see is that John is caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What what is he talking about? Well, caught up in the Spirit, meaning John didn't physically leave Patmos. But John, in in a time of prayer, in a time of worship, God transports him in the Spirit away from that place to a vision of another place. He flips the work of art so that he can see more clearly the front side of the document. And he, he did so, it says, on the Lord's Day. Now, what is the Lord's Day? Well, I believe that's a reference to Sunday. Sunday was the day that Jesus did what? Rose from the dead. And so on the Lord's day, John is worshiping, he is meditating, he is praying, and the Lord transports him away from that prison island in the spirit and gives him a picture of the front side of the work of art. And what is that picture of? It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus could have revealed himself in any way in that moment. But he chooses to reveal himself in very symbolic ways, exaggerations of his identity, so that John would be overwhelmed with the greatness of his God. That was the desired effect, to overwhelm him with his identity. And so Jesus appears to him. What we see, as John Walford reminds us, was not a baby in Bethlehem or a man of sorrows crowned with thorns, but what we see is the Lord of glory. That's who he sees. In all of his, his majesty, we see that. See, when we think of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem, we sometimes think that that's someone who needs defending, Right? But when we see the picture in Revelation 1, it's not someone who needs defending. He's someone who can defend himself. We just want to be with him as he comes in his power. You know, Charles Spurgeon tells this uh, interesting little anecdote 
And, and he says that, that oftentimes believers have this attitude that they are like people protecting a lion in a zoo. And he says, the lion will do just fine by itself. If the lion needs protecting, stop trying to defend him and simply let the lion out. Friends, the picture that we see of Jesus is designed to do the same for us. Stop thinking that Jesus is the small one who needs our protection. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, very God himself. Let the lion out. Now, in light of this, I want to share with you a story. It takes me back a number of years. I was in Alaska, and I was getting ready to go fishing. Now, something you need to know is that I am really fascinated by bears, but I am terrified by bears. And so I enjoy going to the zoo and seeing bears on the other side of the glass. But the thought of running into a grizzly bear in the wild is a terrifying thought to me. And so we're in Alaska, and we're getting ready to go to a pond to fish. And the guide who is guiding the trip, a man by the name of Big Dan, I'm pretty sure that was his given name, Big Dan. Big Dan says that, you know, we're going to a pond, and in this pond, I have always seen a bear. So I'm like, why are you telling me this now? But I'm weighing my decision and what I'm going to do. And so as I'm thinking about what I'm going to do, I look over and I see Big Dan. Now, Big Dan is one of the most intimidating men I've ever been around. When I say Big Dan, I mean big as in his beard was big. It was like three inches off his face. I mean, it was, he was a big guy. And he was a retired firefighter. I'm pretty sure also a retired WWE wrestler. I have no idea. Just a big dude. Um, and he had gone to this pond many times. He had guided in that area many times. And so uh, he said, you're going to be okay if you come with me. And he had this gun that looked like he could back up everything he promised. That gun looked like it would shoot cannonballs. And so did I go? Yes, I went. But I never got further than that away from Big Dan. <laughs> because you know what my thought was in this moment? I will go anywhere with him. I will go anywhere with him. Now, friends, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because we live in a messy world. We live in a world where there are a number of things that could terrify us, scare us, cause us to want to retreat. And yet we need to remember who we are with. Because when we see a picture of who our Savior is, how could we not respond with the similar sentiment? I will go anywhere with him. I was not eaten by a bear. And if we are with Christ, we can have similar confidence in this world. And so we see a picture of Jesus. Now, one of the things that comes, leaps off the page at us is that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. This is not a ghost. Jesus is alive and he is well. Now, that would have been an important thing because they had seen Jesus crucified and they had not seen him for 60 years. And so he shows up and he is, he is aged well, my friends. And he is still reigning in glory today. He is alive. He's alive. That's why he says in the end of the verse when he speaks, he says, I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death in Hades. Nothing can hold me down. 
And then he gives this revelation of himself. He says he's described as the son of man. This is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 10. It's a reference not to humanity, but it's actually a reference to divinity, the son of man, God in the flesh. So as he turns, he sees the one like the son of man. He's seeing God in the flesh. Not only that, he's seeing the one who is dressed in a robe with a gold sash across his chest. Now, what is that all about? Well, this idea of the robe, there was a common piece of clothing in that day and age. But the kind of robe that is described here was a robe that was worn by two different kinds of people. It was worn by priests and judges. So how would you know if you were interacting with a priest or a judge? Well, it would depend on where the sash was placed. Priests would wear the sash around their waist. But judges would wear the sash around their chest. And so when he turns and sees God himself, he finds that God has come in judgment. Not only that, but we see that his hair is white as wool, white as snow. Now, what's that all about? Well, the idea of white is the idea of holiness, but also with white hair comes age. It's a reminder of the eternality of our God. And with age comes wisdom, and so it's a reminder of the wisdom of our God. So our eternal, wise God is standing before John in judgment. Not only that, but he's standing there with eyes like flaming fire. He can see through anything. He sees everything that is happening in this world, in this universe, in heaven, and on earth. And he also sees through whatever facades we put up to see the very core of our hearts and our souls. He knows exactly what is going on. We're reminded of that. Not only that, but his feet are like burnished bronze. This reminds us of a part of the temple where sacrifices would be laid. Uh, There was a bronze altar where sacrifices would be burned. It's a reminder of judgment that comes again. What what else do we see? We see his voice was like the roar of many waters. What did that sound like? I don't know exactly, but it, it would have been loud. You ever been at the base of a waterfall? The sound of that waterfall drowns out all else. Go to the beach and you watch the waves crashing on the shore. The sound of the waters of the waves drowns out all other sound. Nothing else is important in that moment. The same thing is is true as Jesus speaks. He drowns out all the rest of the noise. He speaks with authority and with power. Not only that, but a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, meaning he's going to judge the world with his word. And not only that, but his face was shining like the sun. This is a picture of his divinity again. Old Testament reference often to the glow of the sun is a picture of our God. Now, I just ran very quickly through this description of Jesus. And as I do that, some of you are going, hey, slow down a little bit. We want to know more about those things. And if that's what you're thinking, come back the next several weeks. Because what's interesting is all of these components of Jesus' identity, all of these these things that are revealed to John, they become the way that Jesus signs each of the personal letters he's going to give to the seven churches of Asia that we're going to study over the next seven weeks. In other words, he doesn't just say, send this letter from Jesus. He says, send this letter from the one whose hair is as white as wool. And so we will look into a little more of what those things mean. But before we get to the science of all that, friends, let's appreciate the art of this. Because I think that when John heard this, the initial 
feeling, the initial emotion, the initial response was not, hey, let me get a pencil out and really try to break down what all this is. Could you slow down just a little bit? Jesus? No, no, no. What did he do? He fell down. It was overwhelming. Friends, when we read Revelation 1, if we don't have a response of worship and of, of some overwhelming sense of how great our God is, we are not reading it accurately. The intent of the revelation is to reveal to us the person of Jesus Christ. And, and, and friends, I believe it is designed so that what we will do who are living in this messy world and experiencing difficulty and trouble, so that seeing who he really is, we might also say, I will go anywhere with him. I will go through anything. I'll go through cancer if he's with me. I'll go through this world and, and political cycles and challenges and difficulties. I will go through those things and I will go through those things with joy in my heart because he is with me. I will go with him anywhere. Now, I think it's interesting. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's this great situation where Elisha, the prophet, is with some folks and they're surrounded by an enemy army and they're, they're, they're kind of nervous and scared. And Elisha is doing okay. And the guy's like, what's going on? And Elisha said, well, the Lord's army is here. And he says, well, really? And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes to see your armies that surround us. And the gentleman's eyes are open, and they look, and they see the Lord's armies that surround. And that's enough for them. Friends, what we see in Revelation 1 is, is really very profound. It's not an entire army. It's one. And he's enough. Jesus is enough. Now, he's the God of angel armies too, but he alone is enough. And we have the privilege of being with him. And so when we think about our situation, we remember that we're living in this real world, but this revelation of the reality of who our God is is demonstrated to us so that we might not be afraid, so that we might not think that things are spinning out of control. But if all of that is true, how are we to respond? How do we respond in light of all of this? Because we're not just to take this in and and go, well, that was interesting, and then move on with our lives. How are we to respond? Well, our response to this revelation really could have two or three parts. One thing that we need to remember is that we need to remember that we are to fall at his feet. To fall at his feet. Now, John, I mentioned earlier, was one of the apostles. And John in his gospel, in John 13, talks about the event where they're having the Last Supper and John was reclining against Jesus' chest. I mean, we've all, we've we've seen the photo that they posed for, right? Where they all got on that one side of the table and they took a little picture and, well, John was leaning against the breast of Jesus. And so that was John's experience with Jesus in his earthly life. But what's interesting is when John sees Jesus in Revelation 1, his response is different, isn't it? His response is that he fell at his feet as though dead. He was blown away. He just collapses in front of him. Now, this is similar to the response of others who have seen the risen and glorified Christ. We think about Uh, Acts chapter 9 and verse 4, where the Apostle Paul responds similarly on the road to Damascus. And we see it as uh, Daniel chapter 10, verses 7 through 9, describes Daniel's uh, coming face to face with a revelation of God also in Daniel's prophecy. 
And so we see this response that is falling at the feet of our God. Now, you might be thinking, well, which one is it? Do do we have the ability to, to lean against his breast or do we have to fall at his feet? Well, the answer, honestly, friends, is both. But when we forget who he really is, we take this kind of access for granted. When we remember who he really is, the depth of his grace becomes clearer and clearer. The one who sits sovereign over all things, the one who created it all, the one who will judge it all, invites us into fellowship with him. That's a remarkable statement. But all of that begins with us falling at his feet. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, What the church needs today is a new awareness of Christ and his glory. We need to see him high and lifted up. There is a dangerous absence of awe and worship in our assemblies today. We're boasting about standing on our own feet instead of breaking and falling at his. Friends, do you have a heart response today that is falling at the feet of Jesus? Just in awe of who he really is? In such awe that we would say, whatever you say, I will do. I will obey you with all of my strength. And with all the strength that you give me and the empowerment of your spirit, I will follow you because there is no one like you. I I will gather and I will lift up your name and I will sing songs and worship because there is no one who is worthy of honor like you are. Is Is there a sense inside of us of that kind of an awe and falling at the feet of Jesus? If not, we're not seeing things accurately. We're looking at the backside and not the front side. We need to remember who he really is and fall at his feet. And when we fall at his feet, you know what we get to hear? We get to feel his hand on our shoulder, and we get to hear him say, fear not. Because the one who is able to judge is also willing to save. We fall at his feet. He places his hand on our shoulder and says, fear not. I have conquered death Nothing is greater than I am, and I will give to you life as well. What a promise. Have we fallen before him? How are we receiving this gift of life that he offers? One of the responses to this revelation. But another response to this revelation that we need to think about has to do with the lights that are mentioned here. Inside of these verses, we've seen a number of different lights Uh, We've seen stars, we've seen lampstands. If we back up to verse 16, we we see also a face that is shining like the sun. Now, all of these different things are some kind of a light bearer, right? Whether it's the, the, the sun or whether it's a lamp or whether it's a star. It provides some kind of a light. But what's interesting is he begins to identify what each of these things are. He says that the star is a representation of the angel of the church. Now, what what is he talking about when he says that? Honestly, we don't know exactly. It could mean that each church, each congregation has some kind of an angel connected to it in heaven. It also could mean that the word angel should be translated messenger and it refers to some kind of a human leader or pastor inside of the church. We don't know for sure the exact meaning, but the the clear picture is that 
there is representation of each congregation in heaven, and it's held in the hand of Jesus. He's got us. And not only that, but our congregation is pictured like a lampstand that he is walking among. He is with us. He's got us, and he's with us. That's the picture. That's the idea. That's the encouragement. But we need to just not miss the forest for the trees. The sun is the greater light. The lampstand and the stars are the lesser lights. Let me give you an example of that. If we were to go outside and the sun is shining bright, if we were to take our phones or a flashlight and shine them about, we would not be impressed by how much light it's putting off. Why? Because there is a light that dominates, and these others are much smaller by comparison. Friends, in the same way, the one who receives the glory and the honor is Jesus. He's the Son. Our church, though we get to emit some light in this community in the darkness, we are not near as important as he is. In any representative of a church, though God may use them to to be a star, to provide some light in different ways and to point to Christ, they, they are not the one to be the star of the show. The sun that is shining is Jesus himself. If you ever find yourself in the midst of a congregation that is making much of the church building or the church pastor and not much of Jesus, you need to find a new place to worship. Because it is about Christ. He is the one to be honored. He's the one to be lifted up. We have the privilege to be connected to him. Now, the mission of the church is to shine as Christ's light in the world. This picture of a lampstand. And he's going to move from this general revelation to letters to each of those churches that provide significant encouragement and challenge to each of us. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at how that plays out as we look at these letters to the churches that are to come. But before we do that, and as we think of responding to his revelation, I I just want to, to close with this one thought. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, we have what is basically an outline of the letter of Revelation. Most Bible books don't come with their own outline, but Revelation actually does. And what we see in it is things were needing to be written down that John had seen. Well, what were those things? Well, those are the things that we see in chapter 1, the vision that he saw of Christ. And he also is to talk about the things that are, and that's the events that are happening at that time in the first century in the churches of Asia, the subject of the letters we're going to look at over the next seven Sundays in chapters 2 and 3. But also, the things that will take place after this. And those are the things that will take place in the still yet-to-come future as there is a culmination of all things in the return of Christ. So we will be looking at that in the year ahead but thankful for the chance for us to see the front side of this quilt just for a moment today. We were reminded of who Jesus really is, the Lord of the church. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for just this chance to be together and to open your word and to study it. We pray that you would just help us to never lose sight of who Jesus really is, that we would never become just focused on the the shadows we see in this world and the confusing feelings that we have and have them distract us away from the reality of who Jesus is. 
May, may we have this vision of Christ today and may we fall at his feet and hear him say, fear not. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.